is an Odyssey original. This is KX in Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. The debt ceiling deadline fast approaching. Can Congress pass the deal? We'll go in depth. Will AI kill off humanity? There are some experts who are nervous about that. Also, the HBO hit show Succession is now over. We look into what made it so popular. We start, though, with the looming debt ceiling. Billy House is a Bloomberg News congressional reporter who's at the Capitol right now. Billy, thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. So what is the uh, the current outlook? Uh, it obviously has to go to a vote in the House. I think that's supposed to happen uh, tomorrow. The Senate, it's not clear, at least in my mind, when the Senate takes it up. But what's the uh, the outlook at the moment? So Congress is rushing uh, against the deadline that the Treasury Secretary says is uh, Monday for uh, a potential default. So the first big test for the bill, the agreement uh, between the White House and and Speaker Kevin McCarthy, is going on right now in a House Rules Committee meeting. That sounds processy, but really it's the committee that decides whether to send that bill to the floor for a vote tomorrow. There are some conservatives who do not like the bill on that committee – and it, there's some Democrats who haven't voiced exactly where they are. So that's where we're at. We're wondering how that committee uh, responds. It is believed they will advance it to the floor tomorrow for a vote tomorrow night. And yeah, a lot of spinning has gone on about this. Uh, obviously, uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, is trying to boast that, uh, hey, Democrats got nothing out of this. But, uh, you know, the experts look at it and say, well, no, actually, uh, it looks like President Biden did score some points here. President Biden having some fun with a reporter over the weekend saying, why am I not boasting about this? Why should I do that when it hasn't come to a vote yet? Because he doesn't want to, you know, jinx it, as it were. If he crows too much about it, those Republicans in the House might balk on that. Is there a chance dissenting Republicans who who think it didn't go far enough that McCarthy maybe got rolled uh, would be able uh, would be enough to derail it? It's unlikely uh, they could derail it. The House minority leader, the top Democrat, Hakeem Jeffries, says Republicans need to deliver 150 votes. Now, there's 222 of them, uh, and then the Democrats would deliver the rest. Uh, There's a good, solid group of 30 or more far-right conservatives who oppose the bill, but uh, it looks like McCarthy can get the votes. What's more embarrassing, though, is if those Republicans, those far-right Republicans, then uh, launch a motion to oust him as speaker. Is the economy, though, at the moment strong enough that the thinking is that uh, going down the road, it, it's not going to make that much of a difference in terms of either the, uh, you know, the the, the budget deficits or spending that it all it seems to be coming out in the wash because there was so much give and take. There was a lot of give and take. In fact, there's even give and take on the interpretations of some of what they did, uh, including how much the, uh, the Republicans like to say this bill, this deal cuts two trillion dollars in spending over the next 10 years. Democrats say only one trillion. So that sort of thing. There's a number of areas where they disagree on exactly what the numbers are, but they're plowing ahead with a vote on that. And so there is wiggle room for both sides. And you're absolutely correct. It's unclear what it all means, really. 
All right, if Kevin McCarthy manages to win, uh, to get shepherd this through and get the Republican votes that are needed, and you say that's that's likely, and uh, I think the Democrats could probably stand to lose a couple of uh, dissenters on their side, but not too many. But let's just say that Kevin McCarthy does get this through. He wins a victory. Is it a Pyrrhic victory? Because then, as you mentioned, the, the chance that some of these far-right Republicans uh, take that opportunity to remove him as chair, and if they do, who would replace McCarthy? Well, that's that's the big question, the bugaboo for him. But here's the deal. If McCarthy has to get this bill passed with uh, with a good chunk of his own Republican conference, not voting for it, uh, that's a disunified conference. And and uh, uh, one at least one member, uh, Bishop from North Carolina, said he's going to uh, he's submit a a motion to uh, to remove uh, McCarthy as speaker. Now, that's going to be at least embarrassing and potentially dangerous unless Democrats Cross the line to help McCarthy out. All right, uh, Billy House, a Bloomberg News congressional reporter at the Capitol right now. Thanks so much for joining us. Right now, though, if you're in the market for a new car and are thinking of going all electric, it might be better to lease rather than buy. Larry Prince is executive editor with the DetroitBureau.com. They cover the automotive world. Larry, thanks for being with us. Why would it be better to lease than buy? Well, there's a loophole in the tax law. Um, The tax law, to get the tax credit, the full $7,500, the vehicle must be built in the U.S. And the components of the batteries, which accounts for half the rebate, also, well, tax incentive, excuse me, uh, also have to be made in the United States or sourced from countries that are friendly to us that are not belligerent, i.e. China. Uh, As a result, there are only about 10 or 11 vehicles right now that qualify for the full 7,500 tax credit. But the loophole is this. For commercial vehicles that are leased, the full $7,500 tax credit is available. And that was written for um, fleet owners who typically lease their vehicles in great quantities so that it would encourage them to turn their fleets all electric. The caveat for retail buyers, however, is that it goes to the company that's leasing the vehicle, in this case, the dealer. So they don't necessarily have to pass that on to you. So it is something to keep in mind when you go to, uh, if you go to lease your vehicle. What about uh, being economical in general? Because I've I've bought lots of cars in my lifetime, and I'm I always walk in well aware that the uh, guy selling me the car is making the best deal for him or herself, not necessarily for me. The only reason they want me to be happy is so that I might come back and get my next car from them. So I get all that. And I have been told two different things, like it is better to buy and invest in this car or it is better to lease. Now, what I have heard is that leasing electric vehicles was a better option only because of the batteries themselves and that the uh, the cars don't have that long of a shelf life as far as a used vehicle. Is there a market for used EVs and aren't batteries a problem with that? And that's why you want to lease and keep yourself in something new? There are. I mean, used EVs can be a good buy rather than lease just simply because of the fact the depreciation on them can be very steep because the question is, how good is the battery? And the battery is an expensive part to replace. The other side of it is is that these batteries are warranted for, you know, eight years, 100,000 miles. So you do have a pretty good shelf life on them. And there are tales of of Toyota Priuses, which have electric batteries and which have batteries in them. 
and going very, very far, far beyond the 10 years without needing their batteries replaced. It is a bit of a gamble, especially if you're someone who likes to keep a car. I would say that given the evolving battery technology, it might be better to lease because three to five years from now, we might have much better battery technology. We already have better battery technology today than we did five years ago. So it's still a pretty new segment of the market. And so it wouldn't be totally crazy to lease rather than buy, even for someone who likes to keep their cars a long time. Is there any indication that the government is at least thinking about different kinds of incentives? Um, not that I'm aware of. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't they aren't being talked about, but the incentives are doing what they were designed to do, and that's to bring manufacturing uh, to the U.S. of battery technology and, uh, and componentry. And that's really one of the reasons it was done. We don't have any of very little of it here, aside from maybe Tesla. Doing this now has forced a lot of foreign automakers to announce assembly in the U.S., to take advantage of the incentive. And we're talking Volvo and Audi and you know automakers like that. So there will be plants. Uh, oh, and Hyundai Genesis, um, they, they will be coming here as well. So it's certainly something that's coming to the US and it's just, just it's gonna add to our strategic strength. Um, one of the things the military is requiring is that they be um, fuel agnostic in their vehicles. And one of the ways to do that is to have battery electric technology in the homeland. So there are a lot of reasons why this incentive is in place. What about the uh, possibility that we could see a, a big change in the pricing of EVs in the near future? Tesla has been dropping prices on their cars, trying to trying to get uh, sales back up. Uh, and then some other uh, some of the big automakers who sell EVs are, are kind of having to respond to that and drop their prices. Could we see a, a race to uh, the lowest possible price for EVs? And would that affect someone making the decision whether or not to uh, lease and, and get into something for two to three years rather than buying something and getting locked into a contract of six, seven, eight years? It's certainly possible uh, as more cars come into the market. You are going to see bigger inventories and bigger inventories inevitably lead to incentives. Uh, and then that's certainly something we're going to be seeing. It, it won't happen. It'll be unusual for it to happen in the near term, but dropping the price is the same thing as slapping a rebate on it. So uh, Elon Musk has raised and lowered the price of, of Tesla's, you know, every couple months. And it's the same thing as having an incentive, quite frankly. All right, Lawyer Prince, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, executive editor with the DetroitBureau.com covering the automotive world. Right now, though, a new study from the U.S. Geological Survey says as much as 25 to 70 percent of California's beaches could erode by the end of the century because of rising sea levels and other impacts of climate change. Gary Griggs is a professor of earth sciences at UC Santa Cruz, and Stephanie Sekic is the senior manager of the Coast and Climate Initiative with the Surfrider Foundation. Thank you both for uh, so much for joining us today. Gary, let's start with uh, you. So this prediction that in not a very long period of time, California may lose, what is it, about 70 percent, maybe more of its beaches is pretty frightening. Yeah, I'll say we are very dependent on beaches, particularly in Southern California. <clears throat> and the, I mean, one thing I would say is this is being done with satellite imagery and models. 
And two things I will say is um, one of these is from the one of the co-authors of the papers. Models are models. They're all wrong, but maybe <laughs> some of them are useful. <laughs> and the other is prediction is really difficult, especially about the future. So coastline is a really complicated place. It's really very, very difficult to you know approximate future conditions with all the uncertainties. So I think we need to take this with sort of a warning flag but realizing this really isn't precise is what might happen with all the uncertainties. All right. So, Stephanie, uh, to that point, uh, yes, predictions can be a little bit uncertain, but uh, wouldn't you say that we are seeing the effects of just what we're worried about here on the West Coast? We're already seeing the effects in some places on the East Coast. I, I, we, we've seen the videos and pictures of uh, houses that had been standing there near the shoreline for years and years, and all of a sudden that house is gone now because the ocean has moved up. Correct. You know, we are starting to see a lot of impacts, and particularly in Southern California, as Gary was saying, and and a little bit to the to the point of this modeling being somewhat less than accurate. All sea level rise models, all kind of coastal geological analysis is going to be open-ended. But at the end of the day, it takes more than just using beach morphology. We need to look at future sea level rise projections, coupled with the larger storms we're starting to see, as we saw with the atmospheric rivers. There's a culmination of different elements that are going to make our beaches go away, and it's not just using one type of model. So really what we need to do at the end of the day is take a watershed approach to looking at these models and understanding really what our sediment budgets are around the coast. And really at the end of the day, and I can't put a finer point on this, is how we manage our coastlines through either development or armoring. And as we see in Southern California, about almost 40% of our beaches have some type of armoring, which means that is trapping the sediment that would be getting to our beaches. So there's a huge element of human intervention as well. And uh, Gary, uh, let me ask you, if, if we're going to be losing some of the beaches to erosion, uh, how long will we have to wait for the uh, new coastline to make a new beach? <laughs> well, most of our sand in California comes out of the rivers and the streams and then some out of the eroding bluffs. <laughs> We've altered all of those. But I think another important, important point that Stephanie made is Almost 40% of the coastline of Southern California from San Diego, Orange County, LA, Ventura has now been armored. There's something behind it. It's a wall, it's a revetment, it's a railroad. And with sea level continuing to rise, what we essentially do is gradually flood or drown that beach. So the protection we've put in that protects the back beach, the cliffs, the bluffs, the dunes, is going to lead to the loss of that beach through ongoing sea level rise. And that's sort of the dilemma we find ourselves in. We're protecting private property, but we're going to lose the public beach. All right, got it. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Gary Griggs, professor of earth sciences at UC Santa Cruz. Also, Stephanie Seckich, the senior manager of the Coast and Climate Initiative, initiative I should say, uh, with the Surfrider Foundation. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Hundreds of business leaders and public figures have signed a statement describing the threat of mass extinction that artificial intelligence poses. Now, this coincides with growing calls for regulating AI. David Orbach is a uh, tech writer and software engineer and previously worked at Google and Microsoft. David, thanks for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. So it does seem as if there are more uh, vocal 
uh, voices, uh, I guess that's sort of redundant, but, but more vocalization anyway, uh, by people who are in the know who seem to be expressing real concerns about AI, its development, the lack of regulation, and where AI might, might take us. Yeah, the interesting thing is that it's a very short statement, one sentence, <laughs> and all it asks is that we should focus on mitigating the risk of extinction from AI. Doesn't say how that might happen, doesn't say how how we should try to mitigate that risk. So the way I see it is that this statement is them trying to basically put it on the radar, that even within the field, people don't quite agree on what level of risk there is, but they do agree that AI is developing seriously and it poses a number of potential risks that we should not ignore. Well, we but, 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 it's more than, but it's more than just some potential risks, which sound kind of benign. I mean, a lot of things have risks. You can, you know, fall on the on your face in the street if you walk out and, and you, you know, you slip on a piece of ice or a banana peel. They use the word extinction. Extinction is much graver than risk, isn't it? Uh, yes. Extinction level event is pretty serious. But again, are we talking about extinction through some sort of Skynet-based AI? Are we talking about just AI malfunctioning? It doesn't say. So it's more, they even have said that it's designed to start a conversation. So I think to some extent, what what it is, is to say, like, look, look, we don't know exactly the level of risk here. The potential level of risk is indeed huge. But um, but we're trying to raise awareness now so that we can even assess what that level of risk might actually be, because the worst case is very bad indeed. But it it echoes with a lot of people because of fear of the new fear of the unknown. And so AI is all of a sudden this thing that everybody's talking about. Uh, it's really just a new way of modeling a computer responses, but people people fear it. They don't understand. So you, you kind of hit into that fear by saying, hey, this could cause the extinction of the human race. But isn't there a bit of projection there? And this is not just something for AI. This is something that uh, me as a, as a science fiction reader and viewer of movies have thought about a lot. We always seem to project our own desires onto the aliens that are coming here to invade the planet and take it over or the supercomputer that's going to take over the world and wipe us out. We assume that the aliens or the AI or the supercomputer are going to try to wipe us out because that's what we have done in our past history. As we've encountered these other cultures who were not as advanced as us, what do we do? Well, we, we tend to wipe them out. That that's that's in world history. Is there a projection here? And is that factoring into this fear of artificial intelligence that it's going to do the worst thing we can think of? For some of us, definitely. I think that's very well taken. If you talk to Jet Chat GPT, it's so easy to think that it feels and thinks, but a lot of it is closer to something might you might think of as a parlor trick because you can get it to you know, make up facts and say nonsense quite easily. What's amazing is that it's convincing as much of the time that it, that as it is. But uh, in reality, we are farther, a lot farther away from any sort of like Skynet-like AI than some people worry. I think that the point of the letter, though, is to say, look, let's start thinking about it now and because so that we can prevent it, you know, well ahead of any of that coming about. But they're not talking about this as, as if this is some risk in the next five or 10 years, maybe not even the next 50, just a but just something that we've got to be on top of. 
But of course, there you know, go back to the 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 less severe than extinction word risks. There are current risks. There's a very interesting New York Times story today, in fact, about uh, an attorney in, I believe it was New York City, but I I might be wrong about that, uh, who ended up submitting an entire brief to a court with, you know, citing law cases that didn't exist, but he got off of an AI system that made it up out of whole cloth. And it was only when the attorneys for the opposing side realized they couldn't find those citations did it occur to everyone that this had been all made up by yeah. a computer? Yeah, it's it's uh, and that really is a more pressing concern. It's not an extinction concern, but the effects of AI on the smaller scale are already here, and that we're going to be seeing. Misinformation is a huge one. Deep fakes are a huge one, and also just the elimination of jobs from it. That's also going to be a big deal. And when it comes uh, to when it comes to AI uh, creating something out of whole cloth like that, some have compared that to the same way that the human brain imagines things, makes up stories. That uh, somewhere in the modeling that's behind how Chat GPT works is the same thing that enables our brains to imagine. Are computers imagining, and that's why these chat programs are creating things? No, that's a projection. That's exactly the sort of projection we should be careful about. These there, there's not enough thinking there to, to to call it imagination. What it's doing is generating text. It's generating text through a very complex process, but it doesn't have, it doesn't know what's true and what's not. You know, it doesn't have a distinction between, uh, bet- between imagination and reality because it doesn't even know what reality is. It doesn't even know what the words mean in any real sense of the term. It's just incredibly good at creating that the appearance that it does at least a good chunk of the time. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, David Auerbach, tech writer and software engineer. He used to work at uh, Google and Microsoft. You know, I was thinking about what he said and how AI doesn't know what words mean, as if that makes it more benign. But there are people who don't know what words <laughs> mean, and they're not benign at all. So I'm not quite sure that that and, translates. And we're getting in trouble with them. By the way, you can check out our uh, town hall uh, reality and AI worlds on our website, knxnews.com. When we come back to the HBO hit show Succession, it is now over. If you watch it, you know it. If you don't watch it, you probably don't care. We look into what drew so many people into a show that had so little action. The HBO show Succession succeeded in drawing in millions of viewers the past several years. And all without sex, well, a little bit, but not much, uh, violence or even superheroes. So what is the appeal. Mark Malkin is a senior editor at Variety, host of the Just for Variety podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. How you doing? So why did Succession hit with so many people? And and not just for the fans, but also I saw lots of people talking about the impact of the show who really only watched a few of the episodes, but because it became such a huge topic of conversation after its finale. What in that show about some very unlikable people who are very unlike most of us. They've got so much wealth. They've got money to burn. What appealed to us about that? I think there's a few things. I think, one, audiences love to watch really rich people who we don't like um, have all of this drama. You know, it's, you know, it takes me back to the days of Dynasty in Dallas. This acting is much better, I have to say, on Succession. But we always love watching these very rich people go at it stab each other in the back. And then we can't discount, of course, the actual performances. Brian Cox, 
you know, his Logan Roy will go down in TV history as one of the greatest kind of villains of all times. One, you know, that father knows best. This is father knows worst in the best possible way. But, but, but you know, you mentioned, of course, uh, Dallas and Dynasty, which existed, as you know, in a world uh, of less uh, fragmented television when a show can get tens of millions of of viewers at one time, something that Succession never did get because of the fragmentation of cable. And I was talking to someone earlier, and I kind of equated Succession to snails. And in this sense, that you either love them or you hate them. And some people think snails are the greatest to eat, the French in particular, uh, and others who who are just <laughs> revolted and have no no, they wouldn't look at a snail if you put it in, in front of them. And in some ways, I think the show was like that. There are some people who were drawn to it uh, for whatever reason. And then there are other people who were certainly aware of the content because it has been out there in public for five years now. And yet, for whatever reason, just didn't want to bother. What, what do you think caused that dichotomy? I think, you know, exactly what you're saying. Like, with so many things that are so beloved by so many people you always have a percentage of the population that wants nothing to do with it. I'll admit, there were times where I would watch Succession. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to tune in later. I'm not in the mood for all this toxic, I mean, really vile, vile behavior between family members. And then I'd come back to it later on, and I would just absolutely love it. And I would be really into it. And then you can't discount, of course, the water cooler talk. Sure, people aren't around the water cooler as much anymore because of COVID, but because of social media, people were talking about the show. They had theories. They had hypotheses. They wanted to know what was going to happen next. And then a genius move for Jesse Armstrong, the creator of the show, to announce we're ending this show after four seasons. So you knew you had to tune in now because this was it. Right. You know, uh, as you talk about people hating it at first and then coming to love it, that's exactly what happened with me. I watched the first episode, and while I I knew that this was very good acting and very good writing, I did not like it at all. I, w- I, I found the people to be toxic. I found there was nothing for me to sink my teeth into. No one, uh, I mean, sometimes you root even for the villains, but I felt like I can't even root for these villains here. But I stuck it out. I watched the second episode because I was just curious what was going to happen next. You're saying you allude to things. You're like, should we take a look at the, you know, thing and do the thing? And and that was some of the dialogue. What is that part of the appeal? Is that even though these were rich, toxic individuals, the dialogue felt like you were actually listening to real people talking. That's what that the dialogue is absolutely key. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head right there because it's like people talking and also it left so many open-ended possible answers they would say something and then they'd you know raise an eyebrow and you're like oh my god that just changed the complete meaning of the sentence that they didn't even complete so you are always trying to figure out what was their motive because so much of the show was about trying to figure out people's motives and what were they really going to do were they going to stab that person in the back were they going to be an ally with that person back Do they really care that their father died or are they really happy that their father died? Are they having an affair here? Are they having an affair there? Do they like this person, hate this person? And the person is their best friend, but do they actually hate them? And I think so much of that dialogue, we just kept wondering, what exactly did they mean here? What does this mean? And then the genius of the writers and the directors and 
everyone involved would just turn everything on its head and we would be talking about it for days. So television loves a success for obvious reasons, money being the chief among them. Is there likely to be a sequel to Succession? I don't think so. Jesse Armstrong is like, you know what? I gave you this great thing. I am leaving while I'm on top. Now, I can't talk about 25 to 30 years from now when a lot of these people may not be around. As we know, there are a lot of shows getting reboots and getting reunions. And of course, everyone's thinking, which character do you want to see have the spinoff? Um, but like you said, you know, money does talk. Um, so maybe if they throw enough money at them, that said, right now, every studio is tightening their bank accounts. They are not throwing money at people. So um, I think right now this is it for succession. We have seen four seasons and we're out. Has but, it, but hasn't it been, I'm sorry, because I was just thinking when you said that, but but hasn't there been like a number of times when I'm thinking of like Downton Abbey when it was the absolute last season and then came a movie and it was and that was the absolute yeah. last movie, then came another movie and that was the absolute last movie. Now I read that they may actually be doing another season of it. So, you know, money does talk, doesn't it? Money money does talk. And sir, you never know. You know, you bring up Downton Abbey. I go to Cher. How many times did Cher say she was doing a farewell concert tour <laughs> and she kept coming back? Right. So will succession be the share of HBO? We have to wait and see. Or, or Max, whatever they call it now. Yeah. We have to wait and see. All right. Uh, Mark Malkin, thanks so much for uh, joining us today on uh on in depth, you know, I, I I think the two episodes that will stand out for the whole show, which I think, in my opinion, will be one of the greatest. It'll be in the pantheon of greatest TV shows ever. Yeah. The two episodes I think are standing out. Both came from this fourth season. Right. One was uh, the death of Logan Roy. It was so unreal, but it was so much like real life. When you hear that a loved one or someone in your family has passed away, there's there's for for a long period of time you're not believing it can be true, and you. Keep checking with people. That was real. The other episode is the funeral episode. I think we'll both uh, both of those will stand out. But what stands out in my mind now is I never thought I would actually hear share associated <laughs> with succession in Go. the same sentence. And share if you're listening. Give us a call because we'd love to know yeah. how you feel about being now associated willingly or not with succession. That's going to do it for in depth today. We'll do this again tomorrow at 1 p.m.